Hi, everybody. It's so good to see you. So good to see you. I miss you a lot. I hope you know that. Um, as Brian mentioned, we are in this series that we're calling One Story, One Story. And um, I want to tell you something that's encouraging. You know that we are four full months into this journey through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We have covered 3,000 years already. Who says you haven't accomplished anything in 2021? You're killing it. You are killing it. You're doing great. So uh, good for you. Thank you for uh, all of you that are tuning in online. Uh, I see you there, and I appreciate your, your emails and your texts to me. Uh, it means a lot. Um, I, it's, it's difficult. You know as well as I do. It's difficult in these days. Um, but I appreciate you staying connected, and we're doing the very best that we can. All right. Uh, in one story, we left off last week with the decline of King Saul, and that's where we're kind of pick up today. The prophet Samuel uh, from Israel there is sent by God to anoint David to be the next king, and David goes to be in Saul's court. Now, Saul is still reigning as king, but David is going to be the next king. Now, at this point, it's when things start going pretty south for King Saul. Uh, it's not pretty. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, Here's what it says. The spirit of the Lord, here's a sad sentence. The spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. That's, that's tough to hear. Now, here's where it goes on. The spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. That's a, that's a troubling verse, isn't it? Um, what does that mean, really? An evil spirit from the Lord was tormenting Saul. There's a couple of uh, options that we can look at here. It could be that God uh, sent a demon to oppress Saul, and some people argue that Saul was demon-possessed. I don't believe that is the case. Another option that I think is really a little more likely is that this word uh, evil spirit can, can be translated a couple of different ways. It can be uh, translated a distressing spirit or a troubling spirit. I think the idea here is that God is allowing Saul to experience this deep pain. So the pain might do in Saul what nothing else has been able to do, which is to bring him to a place of repent of repentance. So he'll turn and repent before God. It's very clear in this story that Saul goes through a psychological and emotional collapse. And if you read his story, it's really pretty painful. He experiences the, the complete disintegration of his personality. He goes into to a deep depression with violent mood swings from sorrow to just defiant homicidal anger and paranoia. It's, it's not pretty. Um, <clears throat> an interesting thing happens there. He discovers that when young David comes and plays his harp, that it soothes his spirit. Here's what it says in verse 23. So whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp. Then Saul would feel better and the tormenting spirit would go away. There's some words there that I want you to take note of. Uh, and it's very simply the words, feel better. Say those words with me, feel better. Because the truth is, Saul wasn't looking for healing. He wasn't looking for repentance. He wasn't looking to set things right. He didn't want to do the hard work of, of of honestly examining his own soul. He just wanted to feel better. This happens, people have been playing this game for years, forever. There's pain in their lives and they need to do some character work. But the problem is they just wanna feel better. So they mask the pain with other things, don't they? They throw themselves into their work, 
Maybe they use substances or alcohol or plunge into a destructive relationship. Paul does, I mean, Saul does this. This is what happens to him. He just keeps going south here. All right, now, as we move on here, in chapter 17, most of us are very familiar with the story of David and Goliath. Now, the Israelites have been oppressed by the Philistines for far too long. Last week, we saw how the Philistines were so far ahead, or, um, yeah, last week, it was when we were talking about how far the, the Philistines were ahead in kind of the arms race, as far as their weaponry goes. They had better soldiers, they had better chariots, they had more and better weapons than Israel, so it wasn't a fair fight. On top of that, they have Hulk on their payroll. <laughs> this giant of a man had been in the army just smashing enemies for years and years and years. He was a legend. His name was Goliath. And the whole Israelite army is deathly afraid of Goliath. Day after day, the Philistine army lines up in front of the Israelites to taunt them, daring them to come out and fight and in chapter 16, starting in verse number 8, here's what it says. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. It says, when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Now, young David, now, who is not even old enough to be in the army, he speaks up here in verse 26. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway, that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? See, David is not afraid, not even a little. He decides he's going to go up and face this giant Goliath, and King Saul gives to David his own coat of armor and his own sword. And it doesn't really work out that well because Saul is a 52 long and David's a 38 short. <laughs> but now, having read what we read, we understand why Saul would do this, don't we? Because that coat of armor and that sword were, might have been the only one in all of Israel. But it doesn't fit. So David shakes it off and he goes into battle armed only with a sling and a stone. And in verse, verse 43, Goliath speaks up here. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. This is like ancient Middle Eastern trash talk. Um, it's not bad. I've heard worse. Um, you know, if you, some of you saw Happy Gilmore, Happy and, and Shooter McGavin are facing off, and Shooter McGavin says, hey, I eat turds like you for breakfast every day. And he says, you eat turds for breakfast? <laughs> so I've heard worse trash talk than this. David speaks up here. He has a great comeback. He says, today the Lord, he says, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people but not with sword or spear. Listen to this, these words that he said. Victory will come, but not by sword or spear. Because if you think about this, how many swords and spears does Israel have? Two, we read that last week, if you were with us. This is a remarkable victory that's going to be won, but only because of God, not because of sword or spear. Because if it's a sword and spear deal, if life is a sword and spear deal, well, the Philistines win every time, don't they? But it's not. God is with David, 
and David wins. He takes down Goliath, and the Israelites rout the Philistines. Listen, they all go back home, and everybody is celebrating. Saul, King Saul, is the commander-in-chief. He ought to be thrilled, right? He is not. <laughs> he is not. Look what it says in chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry, it says. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Listen, and from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Uh-oh. So Facebook and Instagram are just flowing with memes of the hero David, but Saul is only in the background of these pictures, and he doesn't like that very much at all. He's consumed with envy. Anybody here ever get jealous? Ever? Anybody ever wrestled with envy? I want to show you what this can do to a life. When not arrested, that, what can happen to a life? From that time on, Saul becomes absolutely obsessed with David. And so then Saul schemes. Now think about this if you have a daughter. Saul offers not one, but two of his daughters to David to marry purely, purely as an attempt to kill him, to trick him and kill him. His daughter Michael loves David. Now this is, this is interesting. This is the only woman by name in all of Scripture that says that she loves a man. Michael loves David. And Saul says to David, David, I know you're poor, you're really poor, and you can't afford a dowry, so I'll make you a deal. Think of, he says to David, he says, just bring me the foreskins of a hundred Philistines, and we'll just consider that your dowry. It's kind of a brutal wedding tradition, isn't it? I hope it doesn't become, you know, doesn't catch on. But the reason he does this is because he figures David will be killed by the Philistines in the attempt to do that, and he won't have to go through with the wedding. So he uses his daughter as a pawn to kill the only man that she loves. But it backfires. David kills not 100, but 200 Philistines. Brings twice the dowry that Saul asks for. Now in uh, chapter uh, 18, verse 28, it says, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. David didn't make Saul an enemy. Saul made David an enemy. And Saul lives in fear and jealousy, and he's consumed with hatred. Three times he tries to kill David with his own hand by throwing a spear at him. Now, I am blessed with a great father-in-law, just a super guy. He's a great guy. That's not all that common. I understand that. You ever have a difficult relationship with your father-in-law? You ever have your father-in-law pick up a spear and try to kill you? <laughs> Probably not. Saul becomes so obsessed with David that when Saul's son Jonathan defends David at one point in time, Saul hurls his spear at his own son Jonathan, try to kill him just for defending David. That's how off, the, off his rocker he is. And over the next 10 chapters, Saul continues his descent. The more Saul tries to give David a hard time, the more David prospers. And throughout that whole time, David never tries to attack Saul in return. Never once. Never demands his own rights. He never seeks revenge, even though nobody would have blamed him if he did. 
But instead, David just trusts God with this situation. It is highly unfair, but David trusts God. And Saul lives in a private hell of fear and jealousy and hatred and isolation. Sin does that to a person. Sin does that to a person. And Saul's final descent begins in chapter 28. Let me read this to you. It says, Meanwhile, Samuel the prophet had died, and all Israel had mourned for him. And Saul had banned from the land of Israel all mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. Goes on to say, the Philistines set up their camp at Shunem. When Saul saw the vast Philistine army, he became frantic with fear. He asked the Lord what he should do, but the Lord refused to answer him, either by dreams or sacred lots or by the prophets. Listen, Saul then said to his advisors, find a woman who's a medium so I can go to her and ask her what to do. Now, when Saul says that he wants to uh, find a medium, The term back then, uh, literally translated, is a woman with a pit. A woman with a pit. The way it worked was like this. Some people had access to caves back then, and they would sort of set themselves up in a kind of business, and they would claim that they had access to spirits who lived down in the underworld. Saul himself, as the king, had outlawed this, but now he's troubled. And so much like today, the laws don't always apply to those who make them. (laughs) That's a little bit of a cheap shot. I realize that. The the Philistine army now is advancing towards them. They're now within 15 miles of the Jordan River. And Saul is petrified. And he wants a crystal ball so he can see into the future. So in disguise, because remember, he made this law that outlawed this. In disguise, he goes to see the medium. But she says to him, I can't do this. King Saul outlawed it. Saul here is breaking his own law. And he says to her, trust me, The king will never find out. (laughs) And reluctantly, she says, okay, who is it that you want to see? And he says, I want to see the prophet Samuel. Now, this this part of the story is almost comical to me. The idea of the story is that she's a charlatan, and she's like the old late-night psychics on cable TV that you would see, the Miss Cleo and all that kind of stuff. And so they would do this thing, okay, who do you want to see? Okay, you want to see them? Let's go down to the pit. And they would take them down to the pit. And she said, look down there, do you see them? And the person would go, well, I don't see anything. She says, well, I see them. What do you want me to ask them? It was just a, a sham deal. Now, <clears throat> that's the way that it was, but she would make money off of it. So uh, now Saul says, I want to see the prophet Samuel. She says, okay, let's go to the pit. So they go to the pit and look down there. Now, this is the weirdest part of the story. I don't know how to explain this, but verse 12, here's what it says. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice. Why does she cry out? Because there's actually somebody there. It's the last thing that she expected. But, but he's there, and it completely freaks her out. Now, I, I don't know why God worked in this way, in this situation. But as it turns out, God didn't ask me, not even a little. So uh, I can't explain it, but this is, this is how it goes. Samuel, the image of Samuel comes up, and he's a little testy. He's not in a good mood. He tells Saul what's going to happen next, and it's not good. Saul finds out that God is at the end of his patience with Saul, and it's time for David, the new king, to step in. Saul's time is over. He's had four decades. He's done enough damage. And the next day, she says, there's going to be, I mean, he's, uh, Samuel says, there's going to be a horrible battle 
and Saul is going to die. And it is exactly what happens. So we look at all this and we ask the question, how does this happen? How does this happen? How does Saul sink this low? I mean, he was God's choice to be king. He was big and strong and good-looking and had all kinds of promise. He gets a crown put on his head. And he ends up paranoid, insane, delusional, desperate, slinking in disguise to a fraudulent psychic to try to get some head start on what's going to happen tomorrow. And most of you know that the Bible has some very stern warnings about this kind of activity, going to occultists or mediums, uh, astrologers, so on, trying to find out what's coming up in the future for you. Well, the Bible does give a clue here about how Saul ended up like this. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, we read about a son of Saul who was briefly crowned king of Israel. He was actually a rival of David's for a very short time. His name in 2 Samuel is called Ish-bosheth, which means man of shame. It means man of shame. Ish is Hebrew for man, Ish-bosheth, man of shame. Nobody names their child man of shame. You don't do that. That doesn't happen. You don't name a little baby man of shame. Hey, meet our new baby, man of shame. That doesn't happen. Especially back then in that day, a name stood for someone's character. It was for their destiny, what the parents' hopes for the child would be. Okay, now, we know this child's actual name because there's a parallel account of this in 1 Chronicles chapter 8. His given name is Ish-Baal. You know what that means? Man of Baal. Man of Baal. Saul, the king of Israel, the nation under the one true God, named one of his children Man of Baal. Saul worshipped the idol Baal. This was so painful to the people of Israel that when the scribes copied the books of First and Second Samuel, it was just too painful for them to write the name of this child, Ishbaal, so they changed it to something they were more comfortable with, which is just Ishbosheth, man of shame. Now, Saul did worship Yahweh as well. He did. He, matter of fact, one of his sons was named Jonathan, which means gift of God or the one of Israel or the Lord gives or Yahweh gives. But he also worshiped Baal and who knows how many other gods. He made the God of Israel just one of many gods. He was what we call today a syncretist. Syncretist. In our day, this is pretty common. It's pretty common. People say, I'm, I'll, I'll just, they don't even voice it. I'll take a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Hindu, a little bit of Dr. Phil, a little bit of Oprah, a little bit of Beyonce or whoever, and I'll put my own faith together. Happens all the time. And this is the problem with almost all of the kings of Israel, except David, except David. Even Solomon eventually had this problem. We find it in almost every one of Israel's kings except David. Old Testament scholars suggest that this is why David was called the man after God's own heart. It's not that David was remarkably good or remarkably obedient. He was guilty of lust and deceit and envy and murder. He had eight wives and 11 concubines. He was a disaster as a father. He was filled with faults, but he had one God. But he had one God. Virtually all of Israel's other kings would be like Saul. They would bend the knee to many gods, but not David. He would fail his, many, his, his one God many times, tragic ways, 
But he only had one God. He always repented. He always refused to bend, to knee, to bend the knee to anyone or anything. He had one God, so he was called the man after God's own heart. Saul never knew that kind of devotion. He never did. In the end, he died estranged from the one true God. He died estranged from the one God's people. And he died estranged from the one task that his God had given him to do. Two lives, two very, very different ways. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, we were told that the prophet Samuel died and all of Israel assembled and mourned for him. It's a poignant verse. The whole country weeps. They wept because all that the prophet Samuel had become because of his fiery courage, because of his boundless love for all of God's people and his passion for God. They wept because of how much they would miss those things in the prophet Samuel. They wept tears of gratitude that his life had been lived among them. When King Saul died, we are told that David commanded Israel to weep. See how different that is? And this time people wept because of all that Saul had not become. They remembered what he had once been. He was 30 years old when he was made king, and he was tall, and he was strong, and he was good-looking, and he had all kinds of promise, all kinds of promise. So many things might have happened with this potentially great man. But the people remembered Saul, what he might have been and he wasn't, and had their story might have been so different had he given God his very, very best. And they wept tears of regret over Saul. They wept tears of regret over him. He reigned 42 years, and when he died, all that promise was wasted. It was just all gone, thrown away. Now, next week, we're going to go a little bit de uh, deeper into David's life and how his life was so, so different. But let me say this before we close. It's a funny thing about Saul. He didn't set out to be bad. He just never got around to giving God his full devotion. Don't make, please don't make that mistake. I hope tonight that if God is setting a task before you, that you don't go and hide in the baggage. I hope. If God, for some here tonight, is saying, wait on something, just wait, be patient and wait. I hope that you just trust God and wait. And I hope that if you have been disobedient to God in some way, that you don't try to spin it and you don't try to hide it but you just fall to your knees and confess it. And I hope that if envy or greed or anything like that is choking your heart, that you just allow God to do surgery on your heart. And I hope if God tells you that the time has come for you to let go of something, that you don't clutch it, but you just trust God and let it go. I do hope and I do pray for you that you would give God your full devotion and I hope that when you come to the very end of your one and only life, and you will, and you will one day, that on that day, I hope that the people around you cry the tears of Samuel and not the tears of Saul, because there's a big difference. It's your life. You'll make the choices, but it is important, and it matters what you choose. I want you to bow your heads and we'll pray. 
Lord, we are grateful for these examples that we see in your word that stand out as some as sterling, shining examples and others that we can see, oh dear God, don't let me become like that. Don't let me be like Saul who didn't set out to be bad but just never got around to giving you full devotion and his life just disintegrated because of it. Lord, we are not perfect. We mess up. We have messed up. We will mess up. But Lord, I pray that like David, we will always come to you and come on our knees and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Thank you for the forgiveness and grace that's available to me in Jesus. And Lord, help me up and help me to walk your way once again. God, help us to be more like David, people of just one God. Help us not be the kind of people who mix, mix and match philosophies and religions and thoughts and try to come up with some kind of blended philosophy of life. Lord, help us to be hard and true to you, our one God. You are so good. Lord, for us imperfect people, you tell us in, in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more love could we ask for, God? While we were in the midst of blowing it, you sent Jesus to die and pay the penalty for our sins. That's how much you love us. So God, help us, Lord, to hold fast to you and keep coming closer to you, trusting you more today than we did yesterday, walking with you closer tomorrow than we did today. We need you for this. We trust you for this. And we believe you'll do this in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.